chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. You can go ahead and turn there. And you know, last week we were in Isaiah 6 for a special message. We kind of felt like the Lord laid that on my heart last week, just given the, the new building, the new facilities, sharing your guys, with you guys the calling that the Lord had laid on my heart two years ago to plant the church. But now we're back in Acts 20. We've been working through the book of Acts verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're in a very excited, exciting season in the book of Acts. Basically, we are in Paul's third missionary journey. That's why I have this map up here. Hopefully, you can see, at least get an idea. The cities are very small on there. I apologize for that. But we're going to reference it a little bit at the beginning here. But we're going to see two things in today's section. We're going to see expedition, and we're going to see exhortation. And it's a wonderful section of Scripture. We're going to move pretty quickly through the first part of it. I feel like the exhortation is what we're here for this morning. But let me pray for the Word. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace, for your love, Lord. We pray that you would bless your word this morning, Lord. Father, you would prepare our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive the things that you have for us through the power of your spirit, Lord. Bless this time as we open your word expecting you to speak, Lord. We desire to draw near to you, and you've promised you will draw near to us as we do so, Lord. Father, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here that we would lay down anything that would distract from your glory, Lord. Father, we love you and praise you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're at Acts chapter 20, say, I'm there. Yeah. Awesome. We're going to jump right into it. We're going to start with the expedition. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. It says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also, Aristarchus and Secondus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So what we have in this section is it's giving us a really cool built-in reminder of what we looked at last time in Acts 19. In verse 1, it says that after the uproar had ceased, that's when Paul called the disciples and they embraced, right? And they, they basically met each other. The idea was, Paul is still in Ephesus, which is in the red section called Asia there. That's Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we have him there in Ephesus. Remember what happened in Acts 19. People were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And as they turned to Jesus, they turned away from idols. Amen? This still happens today, right? This should be what it looks like when the gospel goes forth. People leave behind the things of the world. And in the case in Acts 19, as they embraced the gospel, they left these idols, these idols to like the goddess Diana that had a temple there in Ephesus that they worshipped. And this guy named Demetrius, he was a silversmith. He made little idols. And guess what happened to his business when people started going to Jesus? He lost profit, right? That's never good for you. When you're in the world and your money is, or when your God is money, you start losing it, you panic, right? He went out, he got all the other silversmiths and said, we got to stop this guy, we got to stop this thing. It turned into a giant riot, remember that? And the Lord interceded, right? The Lord calmed it without Paul having really get involved. Paul was praying, no doubt. He wanted to go in. The Lord took care of it in his sovereignty. But it was that event, I believe, that Paul looked around and said, I think my time in Ephesus is officially complete. And it's funny because he didn't leave early, I don't believe. I mean, we saw for three years he was in Ephesus. He was raising up disciples, using a school daily, teaching them the word, raising them up, teaching them to be pastors and teachers and apostles and disciples, all these things, and sending them out. And that is why the gospel went out through all of Ephesus. Amen? When we teach the word from the pulpit, the idea is that the body goes out with it and walks out those good works they've been called to in Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 2.10. Amen? So, yes, we are here getting equipped on Sunday morning, but we go out and take the gospel, and it's going to have an effect on the world. 
And so Paul, recognizing, hey, the gospel has spread, everything is moving, no doubt, a stirring in his heart from the Holy Spirit, he realized it was time to move on, and we're told in verse 2 that he departed to go to Macedonia. Macedonia is kind of cut off on that screen. It's in the top left there. And so we have some arrows. Paul's moving along. He's going to go through Macedonia. There's cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. These are cities where Paul had planted churches in Acts 16 and 17, right? You see, Paul was so cool because he didn't just want confessions of Jesus Christ. He wanted to grow disciples of Jesus Christ. He never just said, cool, you guys made your profession. Now I can get out of town and just ditch you. <laughs> he says, I'm going to come back through. I'm going to work my way through. I'm going to check in and see how they're doing. See if they're abiding in the Lord Jesus, if they're abiding in the doctrines that he had taught. But also, we know according to Romans 15, 26, it says, It pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So Paul went through to check in on the churches he had planted, but he also took up an offering, a financial offering, to take to those in need in Jerusalem. And so as he goes and he does this, he's not only equipping them, he's giving them opportunities to serve the body, to bless the body, but it said in verse 3, did you catch this? It says, after he had done that, he had come into Greece. He stayed there for three months. That would be the green on the bottom left where Achaia is. He stayed in Corinth for about three months. This is where he wrote the book of Romans. And as he was hanging out there, he says, well, I'm going to sail all the way over to Syria. You see Antioch, his home church was there in Syria, right? He says, I'm going to go back. We're going to go head towards Jerusalem eventually. But the Jews plotted against him. The enemy rose up and tried to stop Paul from doing the things he had planned. <laughs> and it's so interesting because sometimes we run into attack as believers and just like, man, I guess that's it then. I guess I'll just stay here and do nothing. Like, I'll just like crumble under this. No, it says that Paul decided to just go back through Macedonia, like on foot. Like he double backed, basically, he tricked these guys. Because <laughs> they thought, well, you're going to get on a ship. You're going to go back to Syria. You're going to head to Jerusalem for Passover, which was coming up. A ship full of Jews, imagine. They're thinking, man, we could get Paul on that ship. We could throw him in the ocean. He'll be dead, right? That's what they're thinking. That's what it says when they're plotting against him. They're not just trying to destroy his character. They want to destroy Paul. The enemy desires to destroy us. We understand that, right? But we need, as we studied on Thursday night, the men's group, we need to put on the full armor of God. I love that Paul wrote that to the Ephesians. Because I believe they witnessed many of these things. They knew of these things. That, man, everywhere Paul went, there seemed to be opposition. There seemed to be attack. Can I tell you, you are in a battle when you have joined up and yoked up with Jesus Christ. But can I tell you the good news? He's victorious. The enemy wants you to believe that you are not victorious in Jesus. And let's be fair. You're not victorious. Jesus is victorious. See, he will tell you, you can't win. That is true, but Jesus is going to win. <laughs> I'm on the Lord's side. And as I serve Him, I can trust that if some opposition comes, I can go another way and the Lord is going to be leading me in that. Amen? And what's cool is it says in verse 4 that all these guys joined Him and went with Him. I think there's two reasons here. Practically, they're going to have His back if anyone shows up on the road to beat up and kill Paul. What a blessing to have godly brothers that are ready to stand and have your back in the battle. <laughs> But also, remember, he's taking a financial offering. It's so important to be above reproach by having other people involved with these things. No one could accuse Paul of taking a different amount to Jerusalem if they're all with him representing the different churches that gave. Amen? See, for us here at Calvary Chapel McKinney, I almost said Pomona Valley. That's two years ago. McKinney. We're in Texas now. So, <laughs> at Calvary Chapel McKinney, we have an elders board purposely for one, I think the biggest thing is so that I can protect myself from anyone ever saying I'm doing things in my own interest. It's so good to surround yourself with godly men who are not afraid to tell you yes or no the way they need to in the Lord. Amen? It is important that churches have strong leadership that are, have integrity and desire to bless the body and make sure that those things that are coming in are going in to bless and provide for the body and not for like Paul's private jet. Amen? So these are practical things, like have good guys around you to protect you and keep you above reproach. And so in verse 5, it says that they all, all these guys went out to Troas, which you see on the edge of Mysia there. So they head out, they head there. 
But it says that Paul stayed in Philippi, which is up there in Macedonia, towards the top of the left screen in the orange section. And it says in verse 6, it says that, let me get it for you. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. This whole phrasing of we versus them comes back up. And this means, remember where Paul had left Luke last time. Back in Acts chapter 16.40, he left him to minister to the church in Philippi. And now, we haven't seen that we term be used for a few chapters. Now it's being used again. The thought is, Paul connects with Luke back here in Philippi. Now Luke's coming with him. That's why I changed it to we. So it's pretty awesome as we read this. We're reading like a di like almost like a diary or travel journal of sorts. And there's something so beautiful about the fact that these are like small details. Like if you're making up some mythological book about God, do you include these things? These are small details. This to me points to even more of the authenticity of the Bible. Amen? These are real places, real things. I have a map up here. This isn't made up. These are real spots you could, you know, you could go to. There's modern day names that have changed, but you can go and go through these journeys and see the routes that they took. This doesn't involve some weird made up planet, some weird made up things. There's something so just authentic about it, right? And it says the reason they stayed in Philippi, they stayed there. And they waited for the days of unleavened bread. That's uh, the week-long celebration after Passover, right? So imagine, Paul was trying to get to Passover over in, in Syria, go to Syria and head down to Jerusalem probably, or maybe just be at his home church, whatever it was. But when the opposition came, he couldn't get there for Passover. But here, he hangs out and he partakes in that, in that feast, right there in the festival, the days of unleavened bread. And we think about this. Why was it the days of unleavened bread? What is that? Originally, it had to do with the fact that when they went into the Exodus, when the Hebrews, when the Israelites left, they didn't have time to bake their bread. It was unleavened. They had to rush. But why were they rushing? Because the Lord had delivered them. Amen? The Lord promised to deliver them and began that Exodus. I think about Paul sitting here after he almost got attacked, after he almost got plotted for and killed. He says, man, this, is, this has a new meaning this year. The Lord has sustained me. He's taken care of me. But more than that... As a Jewish Christian, the day of unleavened bread, leaven always had to do with sin, right? When we partake in communion, we use unleavened bread. It points to the sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when we break that bread, we say it reminds us of the body that was broken for our sins and for our salvation. Amen? So for Paul, he says, man, I'm going to hang out. I'm going to partake in, in this here. And I pray that we would have that understanding as we partake in these things. That, man, the Lord has delivered us spiritually and physically. He's going to lead us until it's time to go home. Amen. What a blessing for him to do this with his friend Luke. So they stay there and do that. But now look at 7 through 12. Look what it says. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Wow. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread, and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. That means they were very comforted. <laughs> and so what we have here is Paul has now come over to Troas. They're ministering in Troas on the edge of Mysia there. And it tells us they were there for, what, seven days? And the last day that they're there is the first day of the week, okay? So they're there through a Sunday. Sunday is the last day they're going to be there. And I think it's awesome. It says this was the day that they would gather together to break bread and fellowship. There's many people that will tell you we're wrong for gathering on Sunday mornings, right? The early church gathered on Sundays because it represented the day of the resurrection, amen? We understand that, yes, the Jewish, the, the Jewish people, they had a Sabbath of Saturday, and that's fine. Jewish Christians kept that sometimes, but they weren't being judged on those things. Sunday was the day that they gathered together. And see, for us, 
I think it makes sense in America. Everyone's off on Sunday, right? This is usually the day that most people are off, but it's just, this is where it starts. The early church said, we're going to gather on Sundays because it's the day of our risen Savior. And so as they did that, they would have a meal together. They would come together, on, and usually on a Sunday, it wasn't the Sabbath, right? So it was a work day, so you'd come together after you worked. You'd get together, let's call it 6 p.m., You'd get together, you'd have a meal, you'd fellowship together, and someone you would obviously teach through the Word and, and doctrine. So Paul's there teaching. But it's interesting, if we have this starting at 6 o'clock, let's say, it says that Paul is teaching at midnight. You guys thought I talk a long time on Sunday morning, okay? Six hours, he's getting six studies in in one night, right? That's pretty awesome. It's, it's like old, old days of Chuck, right? Chuck used to cover, Pastor Chuck would cover like 10 chapters in one night, go like an hour and 45 minutes, and people were like, give us more, right? It's like, Paul is there, and the Lord is just blessing it. Everyone's gathered. You can imagine they're in this upper room, right? I think of the children's ministry across the street, right? Going upstairs above the business. Big open space. Lots of people in there crowded together. But did you notice it said that there, was, there were these lamps, right? Think of like fire lanterns. Lanterns with flames in them, right? Many lamps in there. So you have a ton of people in a room where the guy's been talking for six hours, and you have fire that consumes oxygen, right? And you're up where the heat rises, and you're like, oh man, it's getting sleepy in here, right? You may feel this on a Sunday morning here at the sanctuary. You don't even know how good we got it, okay? The reality is, these guys, you got poor Eutychus here. Eutychus is fighting sleepiness. And he's like, oh man, I want to stay awake. We got Paul here. This is the last day he's here, but he's yawning. He's getting tired. I watch you guys do this sometimes on Sunday mornings. I've been here before. I've sat in the pews. I know how it goes. But the reality is the word for sinking and overcome is katapharo. It's a word that means to bear down, to weigh down, and to carry away. In the original language, it gives the idea of, like, Eutychus is wrestling with sleepiness. Like, oh, I don't want to overtake me. I'm trying so hard, right? And it would explain to me why he's hanging out in a window, right? He wants some fresh air. He wants some cool air. He's trying to, like, oh, man, I'm feeling lightheaded. Like, I'm trying to rest. Because I always read this thought, why would you sit in the window of a third story when you're sleepy? But he's thinking, like, no, man, I need some air. I want to stay awake, right? And so, like Matt is right now. Yeah, I see you up there, dude. Stay awake. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he's falling asleep, and he's getting... The guy falls out of the window. Like, I, it's only because I know the ending that I can joke about this a little bit, okay? Think about the embarrassment when someone catches you sleeping and when your wife has to give you the nudge during church, you're like, oh, I hope no one saw. This guy fell out of a third-story window, and Paul has to stop the study to check on him. If he didn't die from the fall, he's going to die from embarrassment, right? Like, that's pretty gnarly. But, in all seriousness, imagine how heavy and sad this night would have been. Imagine we're gathering. God forbid someone died at church. Do you know you can't really leave here? Like, oh, praise the Lord, man. What a good day, right? That would be exhausting and sad. Even with the hope of the Lord, it would be a tragic thing for the family and for everyone else, right? I think it's so cool because Paul is there to minister the body, to just strengthen them, to encourage them. And this, this young man, he falls out. It says, it's literal. It says necros in the Greek. He's dead, okay? Paul says, in verse 10, it says it has the word but. This is a contrast. So it says that, yes, he was dead, but Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him. And he told everyone, like, don't be fearful, right? What did he actually say here? He says, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. What this means is he was dead, but don't worry now. The Lord has given him life again. <laughs> and see, in this moment, as he lays on this guy, I have to think, does this remind us, not only of Jesus, obviously, but we've seen things similar to this in the Old Testament. We saw Elijah with the widow's son. Remember, he went. It was in 1 Kings 17, 21. He raised up the widow's son. It was the Lord doing it through him. And then Elisha, right, he did that again in 2 Kings 4.34 with the Shunammite son. So we have Old Testament pictures to represent this New Testament principle. But now, how many times did this happen throughout the Old Testament? Not very often, right? <laughs> Don't think that this is the rule. This is still the exception, but it shows us that the Lord is good. Amen? That the Lord is able, He is willing, and as He leads, He gives new life. <laughs> 
See, I think this is awesome because we're seeing a physical representation in this case where a young man tried his hardest in his own strength, he just couldn't do it. When he falls dead, it takes the Lord to intercede. After he had lost the fight, it seems, the Lord gave new life to him. And I love it because what does Paul do? Check out verse 11 again. It says, Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak. Paul's like, I'm not done with my study, dude. Thanks for interrupting. We're going back. Where was I? Verse 10. Let's get back into it, right? I just think that's incredible. He's like, dude, what do we do in response to this young man being given new life? In all seriousness, he says, let's go upstairs and break bread. Let's thank the Lord for a new life that he's given. He went all the way till daybreak. And it's interesting because it says they broke bread. Sometimes people go, well, does that mean they had a meal together or they're partaking communion? Well, remember, it's after midnight at this point. I don't think this is a meal. I think that Paul says, this young man getting new life reminds me of someone else that died and resurrected. Let's go celebrate Jesus Christ. Let's go and remember that the Lord is good to give new life physically like he just did. But more than that, those that confess their sins and put their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ... They receive eternal life. Amen? He says, let's go back up and celebrate that. What does he do? He talks about the Lord. They remember the Lord's death and resurrection. And then as he goes to depart, the young man comes up and everyone's like, man, this is just the coolest night ever. <laughs> Think about what could have been. This could have been the worst night ever. But because the Lord interceded and gave new life, it was an absolute blessing. This is our life. Amen? Before, life was not, as much as we tried, it was not the blessing that it is now in Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you eternally, there is no way to even call it remotely a blessing to be separated from Jesus Christ. There is a true eternal hell that separates people from the Lord unless we put our faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so this section to me, it's all about new life. And I just think Paul's probably like, what a crazy way to end my time in Troas. Could you imagine? <laughs> you're a guest speaker and you're like, man, Lord, I didn't think we were going to raise anyone from the dead. That was cool, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord. And he heads back out. Look at verse 13. It says, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Hios. The following day we arrived at Samos and arrived, I'm sorry, and stayed at Tregelium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So it's really a brief travel log, if we're being honest here. It's basically Paul moving along from Troas. You probably can't see the arrows real well, but he's basically moving from city to city, port city along the coast of Asia. And it's interesting, though, in verse 13, it says that everyone got on the ship except Paul. Paul took the journey by foot from Troas to Assos. That's about a 30-mile journey on foot. And there's all kinds of speculation. Well, why would Paul do this? Why would Paul decide to just walk instead of taking the boat? Many of us would say, just take the boat, right? That makes sense. <laughs> but for Paul, I have to think, we're going to see in a little bit, that he's been told in the Spirit already that, man, the things that await you are difficult things. There's going to be trials ahead of you. There's going to be chains ahead of you. <laughs> And also, think about what just happened in Troas. That was a, an awesome event that happened in Troas. So he has this wrestling match within himself, I think, where he's like, praise the Lord for what you're doing. But man, there's some crazy heavy stuff that still lies ahead of me. I think Paul is doing what Jesus did. Get away and pray and be with the Lord. Amen? Because why else walk? I mean, some people say, oh, maybe he got to spend a little more time somewhere. It doesn't really say that. It just says he went on foot. I think this is a reminder that we need to spend time with the Lord. <laughs> us and him. Paul wasn't always surrounded by everyone. Now, he reconnected with everyone in a minute, right? He didn't go isolate forever, but he went and had his quiet time with the Lord. I think this is important. Jesus set this example. If Jesus needs to spend time in prayer with the Lord, I think you and I qualify. Amen? <laughs> Paul says, I'm going to do that. And so he finally meets them. They bounce through the different cities there. But it says in verse 16 that they sailed right past Ephesus, which is interesting because Ephesus was the spot 
Where Paul was hanging out for three years, he had all kinds of friends and buddies there, right? Tons of people he did ministry with. But that's actually the reason why he didn't stop there. Because he wanted to make it to the day of Pentecost without getting held up there. There's a reality that sometimes, I don't know if you guys have experienced this. How many people are transplants here from another state? Quite a few of us. When you go back to your, I was going to say home, that ain't home, Texas is home now. When you go back to your other place you used to live, okay? When you get there, you know how this goes. Everyone and their brothers like, dude, I just saw you check in on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Like, hey, let's meet. Let's get coffee. Let's do this. Let's do that. And you're like, dude, I have two days. <laughs> I can't meet everybody right now, right? And what I can, sometimes can do is people are like, oh, he came out here. He didn't meet with me. I guess he doesn't love me anymore, right? There's like this, this whole division thing that can occur, right? I think in this case, Paul says, dude, I don't have time to see everyone that I ministered to for three years. I need to get somewhere. The other thing that goes with this is he was committed in his mind to get to where the Lord was calling him. There are times when the Lord gives you ministry and obligations that are blessed obligations that you have to say no to some things. I've experienced this in ministry. I want to be at everything. But if I go to everything and can't do the thing the Lord's called me to do, something has to give. Does that make sense? I believe all of, this, all of us have experienced this. It could be family things on Sunday mornings. Someone says, hey, you've got to come to, you know, Junior's party at 11 a.m. on Sunday. I, I can't. I have church. And they'll think that's crazy, right? But you have obligations there. It doesn't mean you can't go afterwards. It doesn't mean you can't do But you have your priorities, so to speak. I believe for Paul, he says, man, I don't see any way I can still do the things I've committed to and I feel the Lord leading me in while stopping in in Ephesus. Does that make sense? That's how I read this, because why else would he sell right past it, right? But it's interesting, when we talk about the day of Pentecost, this was a single-day feast that represented the fact that the Lord had given this great harvest. It's no wonder Paul wants to keep this one this year, right? He's like, man, the harvest that I have experienced on this missionary journey, we had a young man raised from the dead. <laughs> We had a whole town rioting against us, but the Lord superseded that and intervened, and He's changing people's lives. He says, man, I'm going to celebrate the Lord for the harvest this year. Amen? I don't know about you guys. This is my feeling all the time lately. I just can't believe the harvest that the Lord is, is bringing here in McKinney. And let me be clear. I pray that it would include people coming to the Lord for the first time. But just important, just as important is equipping the saints. We want to make sure, we saw Paul do it. He went back through the places he had already saved people with the gospel. Now he's making sure they grow as disciples in Jesus Christ. For me, I know that's my mission. That's my ministry from the Lord, is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ through sound Bible teaching. Praise the Lord when people come to the Lord through that. That should be happening. There's an element of evangelism that happens in every Bible study, right? But I've seen other guys that are evangelists. They smile and the 100 people give their life to the Lord, right? You're like, that's the gift of evangelism, right? <laughs> There's elements of that. I just go, man, I just want to raise people up in the Lord. I want people to grow deeper in the Lord. And I think for Paul, he goes, man, what a blessing that I've been given this season of just a harvest of people growing deeper and new people coming to the Lord, right? And so that's really the section about expedition. Now we get into the section about exhortation. Look at verse 17 through 21. It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pause and tell you what's happening in this section here. We said that Paul felt rushed. He couldn't go into Ephesus, right? He couldn't hit everyone in Ephesus. So what he does in Miletus, which is only about a 30-mile journey from Ephesus, he calls the elders of the church from Ephesus and almost gives them like a pastor's conference. He says, you guys come down to me, I will pour into you, and the trickle-down will happen from you. That's a way that Paul could get everyone. <laughs> and it's really awesome because in this section... I think this is really fascinating. I think it's the only sermon, at least thus far, 
that we have where Paul is not interested in persuading a Jew or a lost person to accept Jesus Christ. He's equipping the body on how to lead in the church. That's really fascinating to me because I don't know about you guys. I came to the Lord already. I want to know how to continue in the Lord, how to do well, how to lead, how to be an example. At least in the book of Acts, this is the first time we're getting this. And it says in verse 17 that he called the elders. The word for elders in the original language is presbuteros. It means bishop or overseer. These guys would essentially probably be the pastors of the different houses there in Ephesus. They were the leaders. There are qualifications for elders. We see them in 1 Timothy, it's, I believe, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as well in Titus 1, 5 through 9. So when you were an elder, it wasn't just because you chose to be or said you were. You had to live up to a calling. Amen? You don't just get to put that like, title upon yourself. People had to look at your life and say, hey, you are doing the things you're supposed to be doing in the Lord. God forbid we just start hanging titles on people and hope they live up to the title. I've done that way too many times. It's the worst thing. Give people the title because they're living up to the title already. And see, that's always a good thing for management. Sometimes in corporate management, we'd give someone a title hoping they would get better. They just wrecked more people. <laughs> you have people that are proven. You go, man, there is a calling upon their life. Put that title upon them and watch how they can just be used by the Lord. Title or not, they're going to serve the Lord this way. Amen? This is important. He calls these guys together. And look what he says in verse 19. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 18. He says, you know in what manner I always lived among you. Can I tell you what is important as a leader? That you set the example yourself before you start telling anyone what to do. I think the worst thing a manager or boss can do is tell someone to do something they themselves would not do or doesn't do. When we do it and live it out and tell people, look at my life, that's a pretty awesome thing to be able to do. And see, for Paul, he says, look at, consider the way I came to you. He says, I'm not telling you just with word, I'm telling you with action how we are to answer this call. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And see, some people would say, man, that's a pretty bold statement, Paul, <laughs> to say we need to copy you. But I love it. He, he directs it back to Jesus. He says, I'm just modeling myself after Jesus. You want to take me out of it? Just go see what Jesus does. My life should look like Jesus. Amen? And if my life is to look like Jesus, guess what yours should look like as believers? should look like Jesus. And he says, man, this is what I want you guys to do. But it's awesome. If anyone thought he was boasting, look at what he says in verse 19. He says, I serve the Lord with all humility. There's nothing worse than a proud leader. A guy that is so caught up in pride and says, this is my work, this is my ministry, you have to come sit under me, it's my authority over everything. Paul knew that he was a doulos. He was a bondservant. I think of Paul just realizing, man, I haven't had some glamorous ministry that anyone could point to. Again, no private jets, okay? No giant sold-out arena tours. For Paul... He says, what was my ministry in 19? He says, look at the reality is, with many tears and trials came to me because of the plotting of the Jews. He says, man, how could I not stay humble? I was running for my life, depending upon the Lord for all of my ministry. <laughs> if I thought I was in control, I would have died back there. But can I tell you an important note in this section? If Paul the Apostle had trials and tears in his ministry, why do we think we won't? <laughs> So many times we pray for just perfect seas, right, to sail out upon. The apostles and the disciples, they learned about this, right? They went on a nice calm season when the storm came. They realized, man, we can't handle this. Who is in control? Jesus is in control. Jesus brought the storm so they would recognize that he was the Lord. Amen? The reality is every time a storm, a, those tears come, the trials come, who are we trusting in? Who are we relying upon? And it's incredible because so many people will be like, oh, I want Paul the Apostle's ministry. I want his ministry. If you're not called to it, it will destroy you. <laughs> Make sure you are called by the Lord in whatever you're doing in the Lord's name. Amen? And then make sure you're trusting in His might and in His power. But I think it's awesome because he tells them not only was it a humble ministry, but what was it rooted in in verse 20 and 21? He says, I went everywhere, whether it was a house, whether it was a synagogue, whether it was Jew, whether it was Greek, and I gave them the Word of God. 
I gave them the call that they needed to repent, that they needed to trust in the Lord Jesus. He says, that's what I did. I proclaimed all of it and I held nothing back. Do you know what this means? I think he held no punches. <laughs> so many people are afraid to tell everyone in the room that they're sinners. Guess what? You're all sinners. <laughs> so am I. We have to acknowledge our sin to be saved by the Savior. Amen? <laughs> he came to seek those that were sick. He came to seek those who were lost. He didn't come to call the righteous. But when you come to Jesus Christ, repentance, you turn your ways, you respond. The idols that we used to worship, we don't need them anymore, just like in Acts 19. And what we are, we become a new creation according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And all the old things go away. I love it. It's not just that the old things get fixed a little bit. They go away. And then all things become new. New life, amen? What a blessing to put our trust in Jesus. We don't deserve it, <laughs> but because He was willing for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despised the shame, and He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God because the work is done, amen? And that's what Paul's proclaiming. He says, I went everywhere. If you were a Greek, if you were a Jew, I had no problem telling you, you needed to repent. Many churches are afraid to tell people that they need to repent. How do you do church without telling people to repent? <laughs> this is literally the message of the cross, amen? If we don't need to repent, Jesus didn't need to die. You hang a cross on, in your sanctuary, on your church, you better be preaching why the cross occurred. It's because of sin. And so Paul says, look, I told everyone, I wasn't afraid. He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He called all men with the same thing. So he reviews what he did in the past there in Ephesus, but now he's going to talk about his present circumstances. Look at verse 22 through 24. It says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. <laughs> Powerful verses right there. He says, look at what I've always done, I've always preached the gospel. You guys need to copy that, pastors, elders. You guys need to do this. He says, and now, that's what I did in the past, but now, he goes, let me tell you a little bit what I'm working through right now. He says, the Holy Spirit has essentially bound me. That means he's being led. He can't shake it. The Spirit's leading him, and he says, I need to go to Jerusalem. And you know what awaits me there? He goes, man, nothing, nothing good, nothing that I think I should look forward to in my own mind, right, in my own flesh. Chains and tribulation. If someone told you, hey, there's a sign-up sheet in back. We're going to go put on chains and go through tribulation. Please go sign up after service, right? You're like, no way. That sounds like a terrible ministry. Remember last week, Isaiah was told, hey, how, like, go tell everyone, even though they're not going to listen. How long? Until judgment day. What? Like, this sounds like bad news, right? The reality is, Paul says, I got to go, though, because the Spirit's leading me. I don't know if you've been there. I'm sure you have as a believer, Right? Where everything practical says, don't go there. You're going to get, this is not a wise thing. He says, but the Spirit's leading me. Earthly wisdom says, don't go, but the Lord is calling me. And he says, man, I'm wrestling through this. And we know he's wrestling through it because he's thinking, man, people are telling me I should be moved by these things. I should be considering these things. But I love verse 24. This verse could be its own Bible study. It's been my life verse since coming to the Lord in 2008. It says, but none of these things move me. Whatever the threats are, whatever the concerns of this world are, those don't shake me. What I'm going to do instead, he says in verse 24, he says, I'm not going to count my life dear to myself. Why? So I can finish my race with joy. We all have a race to run in the Lord. Amen? The Lord knows that there will be opposition in that race. We need to continue to abide in the vine that is Jesus Christ. As Hebrews 11 talks about, we are running this race. It's been done before, and we've seen people do it well. We've seen people do it poorly. What we need to do is make sure we run our race and not just check the box on it. Did you pick up on this? How do you finish your race? With joy. I think it's so easy to develop a martyr's attitude. 
Oh, man, I'm going through trains and tribulations, you know. I mean, I'm sold out for Jesus. This is what he gets from me. And I'm, I'm a prisoner, man. It's so pray for me. I'm suffering, right? There's a joy in Paul. It says, look, there's trials, there's tribulation. I'm going. Why? Because my life is not worth anything to me on a practical level anymore. My life is to be a living sacrifice, as Paul later wrote in Romans 12. Amen? He says, my job is to make my life a living sacrifice. And where the Lord guides me, he will provide what he needs to give me. And the Lord knows the number of our days. I can trust that, hey, if this is the final battle, the Lord's in control. Do I ever want to live beyond the Lord's calling of my life? I want to be here until the Lord is done with me or until he calls his church home. Amen? And in this case, he says, look, I want to do this with joy. We're not to be crazy. We're not to pretend that there's not trials and tribulation. Paul's talking about it. But he says, look at this is what we do, though. <laughs> it's, a, it's a spiritual battle. Put on the armor of God. Get in the fight. Do it and know that the Lord is going to be victorious. And he says, how am I going to finish my race? By completing the ministry that I received in the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. To go tell people about Jesus Christ. Think about this. Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees and now he's calling the Lord instead of being a legalist is to go tell people about the grace of God. I've wrestled through this one personally on so many levels. I feel like I came from a very legalistic background and I have a tendency to be legalistic. Unless it has to do with me, then I want mercy and grace. Everyone else gets legalism, right? Everyone else the law. Me? No, no, no. We're just talking generalities. Let's be very gracious and merciful. But it's hypocritical. I have been saved by grace. I need to be walking in grace. Now, let me be clear. When we understand the cross and grace... We understand the things that we have no business being involved with anymore. Amen? Again, old things have passed away. All things have become new. There should be a marked difference between us being, you know, dead like Eutychus was and resurrected like or resuscitated in Eutychus's case to be this new life. There was a difference. When Eutychus was dead, man, he was dead. <laughs> When he was up and breathing and alive, you could tell there was life in him. And the new life that is in us is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Amen? We don't want to be legalists in the sense that we are being saved by these works. But can I tell you, when you're saved by grace, there's going to be good works that are coming out of your life. If you can't document these things, I would say pray to the Lord right now. For a fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit that He would convict where He needs to convict, but that He would refine where He needs to refine, that He would encourage and rebuild and make you more like Jesus. Amen? Paul went everywhere and told everyone, you need to repent, but it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. You receive that grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, right? And so look at what happens in 25 through 31. It says, And indeed... Now I know that you all, that's Texan right there, y'all, I know y'all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day, with tears. So Paul has talked about his past example, He's talked about his previous circumstances. Now he's talking about the future ministry for these elders. He says, here's the deal. He says, I know that you guys aren't going to see my face anymore. There are chains and tribulations light ahead. I'm not going to be a free man to come and go as I please anymore. I know that's the case. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you, man, I am innocent of the blood of men. If this is the last time I am with you, Know this, I gave you the whole counsel of God. When I stand before the Lord, that watchman commission of Ezekiel 33 has been fulfilled. I have proclaimed to you the gospel, and it's now your responsibility to do these things. My hands are clean of this. Does that make sense? He says, I never held anything back. I never shunned from giving you the whole counsel of God. 
God forbid, as a pastor, I get up here and give you anything but the counsel of God. It's a simple thing. So all you have to do is open the Word of God. But it's not always easy because people would rather give you like a motivational speech or a speech on like tithing to make more money or like talk to you about like, I don't know, five good points to be a better dad or something. Like these are things that people do in church these days. They're like TED Talks, right? They're not giving the scripture room to move. This is where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not by hearing my words. God forbid my words are what you leave with. I hope you guys leave and go, that verse hit me. The Lord spoke to me through that reference. Now, we know the Holy Spirit's moving and speaking through His Word. It's a work of the Holy Spirit and the Word. When you take the Word out of it, though, what do you have? You're grabbing it just like fake fruit all the time. It's not real. It's like just fluffy. We need to preach the Word the right way. That's what Paul always did. And he says in verse 27 again, I have not shunned to declare the whole thing to you. He says, therefore... You need to beware to make sure that you yourselves do this and you take care of the whole flock in the same way because the Holy Spirit has appointed you to oversee the flock of God. <laughs> this is a statement of two things, right? First of all, there's a great responsibility in any kind of leadership role in the church. But there's also responsibility for every believer that knows the truth, amen? That he says, look, you've been given the whole counsel, go take the whole counsel. For the pastor or the elder or the bishop or the overseer, whatever you want to call it, think about how great a calling this is when he says the Lord purchased this flock, this people, with his own blood. It is tremendously valuable to the Lord, but let me ask you something. When did God bleed? <laughs> when he hung upon the cross, amen? Anyone, I had someone this week try to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And I look at this verse and I go, man, when did he purchase it with his own blood? And go to the Greek. It doesn't say with the son's blood. It says with his own blood. There's translations that have been changed. The old New World translation that Jehovah's Witnesses love to reference. They say, oh, no, that's the son's blood. Where? Where did you get this from? In 1980 when you guys changed everything else, right? This is not, it says that it's his blood. And I love this because Jesus died for you and I, Amen. He did it out of love for us. He gave of himself for the benefit of everyone else. Now, we are his inheritance. Praise the Lord for that. But if he doesn't come, we can't have any of this. <laughs> and he says, think about the example of Jesus. He gave of himself to take care of the bride. You do the same. Pastors, leaders, believers, give of yourselves for one another in the name of Jesus. Amen? And it's wild because he says, here's why I'm telling you all of this, right? He says, savage wolves are going to come in. <laughs> They're going to give you false doctrine. They're going to try to convince you to walk away from the deity of Jesus Christ. This happens all the time. Literally, I encountered it multiple times this week. People do not want Jesus to be God. You know why? Because if Jesus is God, you have to obey his word. People don't want to submit to the Lord. They want to be God themselves. I know this because this was me before I came to Jesus. This is still me in my flesh when I don't want to yield to the Spirit. We have to understand that the Lord Jesus has died for us and anyone that tries to tweak that message, man, there's going to be condemnation for them. That's like stumbling. It's like stumbling one of these little ones, Jesus said. It's like putting a millstone around your neck and being thrown into the sea. But he says, not only will they come from the outside, so keep your eye out for that, they can come up from the inside. Why would they do that? To lead people away after themselves, it says. People love having followers. Look at Instagram, it's why it exists, right? I got a new follower. Look at I'm so cool now, right? I don't know. I'm so proud, it feels good, right? <laughs> this is not a new thing, it's just a new platform. Man has always wanted people to follow them and believe that they're holy, that they're like gods. They want to be idols worshipped by man. And so what they do, they can't do it on their own. They have to take some truth and mix it with a lie. You can't sell a lie without a little bit of truth, amen? And so in this case, they take the greatest truth that is the gospel, they tweak it to benefit themselves. You get things like Judaizers, Gnostics. You get all kinds of weird things. You get the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These things still happen today in weird cults, right? And he says, keep an eye on this because as good shepherds, you need to do two things. You need to feed the flock 
But you also need to protect the flock. Can I tell you the board that we have in place at this church? In the short time we've been in church, we've had two instances where we already had to deal with things like this. Where people just openly said, no, you guys are wrong on everything, but we're going to keep coming and telling everyone. We're like, no, you're not. <laughs> you can't do that. Out. You're, you're gone, dude. We love you. You can come back if you change your minds, but no, go. See you later. And it's unfortunate. You wouldn't think these things would still happen. But they do. It's attack of the enemy, amen? People don't even realize they're being manipulated by the enemy. But at the end of the day, it says... Remember, I told you this, I warned you of this over and over, so make sure you finish your race well. And I love it. Paul wrote about his own race at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He said, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. His desire is that these guys would walk in those things and do the same. Amen? Look at 32 to 35. We're almost done. It says, so now, brethren... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> and so what Paul does here is he says, all right, I've given you everything that you need to succeed. I've taught you the whole counsel of God. I've given you examples to follow. I'm telling you to be on watch, be alert, take care of the body. He says, all I can do now is commend you to the Lord. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? When he says, man, I can't do much more, but the Lord, he's willing to guide you and to lead you. And he says of the word of God, he says, it's able to build you up and give you an inheritance. And it's interesting, it's able to do so. Are you willing to do so, though? It's interesting. You have to go out and walk these things out, and you will see that, man, you are working in to this inheritance. It's, it's there reserved for you. But you're walking in it. You're continuing the race, and it's able to sanctify you, to build you up, that you may edify those around you. This is what Christian sanctification should look like. Amen? Day by day, we are being built up in the Lord. Our salvation happened back here when we trusted in the Lord, but now we're being edified, we're being sanctified, we're growing in the Lord. It's an awesome thing. And he says, what you guys should be doing is also take care of one another in the church. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is not a new statement, right? But you know what is interesting? There is a new statement in here. Did you notice this in verse 35? He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's in red words in my Bible you won't find a direct cross-reference for that statement. That's not something that we have in our Bible that Jesus said. Now, it doesn't violate his character. It doesn't violate his word. So it lines up with truth. It sounds like you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But it almost sounds like a beatitude, right? When it said, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and such. Consider all those blessings. He says it is more blessed than all of that. The more blessed thing is to give rather than receiving. And see, I think it's great, because remember how the book of John ends? It says, if we would have documented everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did, you couldn't even contain the books in the world. <laughs> it shouldn't be a shock that not everything Jesus said was written down. But the Lord preserved what we needed, amen? We are responsible for what's there. I just think that's really cool. We have the words of Jesus in Acts. We don't have Acts. We don't have that statement. But it pretty much aligns with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what's interesting here is that he tells them this because I think it's a reminder that don't go into ministry looking to receive something. Don't go out and serve others because you're like, oh man, I'm going to receive something for this. Just go out and do. And you'll be blessed. We all know this, right? Go and consume things and watch how much you have to take care of. You have to pour into these things. You have to go keep these things up versus you give them away to those that need them. Oh, man, the feeling when you walk away of like, this is what I'm made to do. <laughs> this makes way more sense. I am more blessed to give it than to receive. Amen? And it says, who are you doing this for? For those in need. It's so wild to me that sometimes we can get in this place where cool. And this is what like the prosperity gospel says, right? God forbid this is us. Prosperity gospel says, you came to Jesus, now you get everything you want. <laughs> You want a mansion? Just pray for it. Blab it and grab it, right? Like name it and claim it. Do whatever you want. What do you want? You want to be famous? You want to be a rock star? Just name it. It's like, that's not how we use the scriptures. That's not what it says. 
when we understand we came to Jesus and He is now everything we ever needed, it's so freeing. You're like, I don't need the mansion. I don't need the rocket car. I don't need all the things that everyone wanted. Praise the Lord. If you can have those things and handle them well for the Lord's glory, praise the Lord. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When we start worshiping those things, it's so better to release those things. <laughs> but as the Lord leads, amen? Again, not trying to be a legalist on these things. The Lord's good to bless. We know very many rich people in the, in the Word of God that use their riches for honor unto the Lord, amen? But knowing that the Lord hasn't called you just to make you rich or something. His kingdom is not of this earth, amen? And so the last way this resolves here at the very end here, 36 to the end, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would not see his face anymore. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so basically this whole thing ends after Paul talks about his integrity and in ministry. He says, I never wanted silver. I never wanted gold. I just wanted to bless the body. You guys do the same. This is evidence that Paul did that well. These guys are so upset that they're never going to see Paul again. They love him. Imagine the disciples after Jesus was crucified. The devastation that, man, Jesus whom we love is gone. But the joy that was there in his resurrection. In this case, Paul's saying, I'm probably not going to see you guys again. And I, I'll tell you, we've all had these moments, right? Again, we're all transplants. We've had these moments where we left our home church. We left our people, and you, the last thing you want to do is leave these people, but you know you're called to the next thing. And praise the Lord, a lot of people have been coming to visit. It's because we have freedom, and California doesn't. That's been cool. All my friends come and visit now. They're like, oh, it smells like freedom out here. Like, yeah, right? So it's cool. They come and visit me. I haven't had to go back a single time yet to California. It's been like almost two years. I think they think I'm like, don't like them or something. But I'm just happy to have all you guys. This is great. But the reality is, when... You're in the Lord. You have these bonds and relationships that are so much greater than anything you've ever experienced in the world. Amen? I have family, and I love my family, but I have family in the Lord that is thicker and deeper than any bond I've ever experienced because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's why we desire to be here on a Sunday morning together <laughs> versus staying in bed or going to whatever other thing that may be happening. Like, our time is valuable, right? Here we are because we want to be together. We want to grow together. And it's so important. Jesus said in John 13, 35, he said, by this they will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's funny because Paul's been telling them over and over, you got to be alert. You got to be vigilant, right? You got to make sure that no one comes in with false gospels, with false doctrine. And see, it's interesting. When, when Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 4, he says, look, you guys are really good at calling out false doctrine identifying evil works, but I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. See, Paul told them, hey, be vigilant. They did that really well, but they forgot how to love. <laughs> There's got to be this balance in the church, amen? We don't want to get loose and start just, oh, we don't teach the word because it's offensive. That's stupid. We don't do that. Sorry if that's a bad word, stupid. Sorry. But the, re the, really, the reality is we got to preach the gospel. That's where the power is, amen? But we got to do it in a way that's loving and not the false, weird way that the world wants us to love where we celebrate evil. I'm talking about love where we warn people that death awaits if they don't accept Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of everything they ever could know here on this planet and the reason they were created will be fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that spares from hell, amen? But more than that, it's the only thing that gives us heaven. <laughs> it's been said, look, you can scare someone out of hell, but you can't scare them into heaven. In other words, you can tell people to be terrified of hell, but I want to tell you the good news is that Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you because he desires to be with you. <laughs> he desires to reside in you. And today, as you hear that and you say, that's a weird statement and the Holy Spirit knocks against your heart, it proves that this is truth that we've been preaching this morning. And so just as we close now, I'll tell you this. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 4.8. He said, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And in love, I tell you, put your trust in Jesus Christ because he is the sacrifice that has removed the multitude of sins. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for speaking and moving through the power of your spirit. I pray for all the hearts in this room, Lord. 
Father, that we would be ready to receive whatever it is you have for us in this, in this message today, Lord. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that already know you. I pray that you'd fill them to the point of overflow, Lord. Give them your Holy Spirit, Lord. And right now, if you're in this room and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Right now, you can know the love of the Lord by putting your faith in the work that he has done upon the cross. Through the power of his resurrection, he gives new life. You can begin that with a prayer right now. You would say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, hey, if you guys said that prayer with me, I'd love to give you a Bible and give you some apps to continue to grow in the Lord. If you need prayer for anything, if you need to be anointed with oil for sickness or anything, anything you need, come grab us after service. We want to pray for you. Otherwise, let's stand and let's worship the Lord.